This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, we talk with writers Josh Bicell and Jonathan Fenner for an in-depth conversation on writing for television. Their collective work includes The Mindy Project, American Dad, Psych, Scrubs, Happy Endings, and Mulaney. We'll also discuss their work as writers for the 2006 Academy Awards ceremony and their process for working as a writing team. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget to check out our Road to Cinema YouTube video series featuring Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. And you can subscribe to Road to Cinema through the Jog Road Productions YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button to get the latest video updates. You can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram Jog Road Productions. You can like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page. Don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast, and you can hit that subscribe button to get a new episode every week. And now we join writers Josh Bicell and Jonathan Fenner as they take us inside their process for writing for television. So looking back at your credits, I noticed that you guys have been working together, if I'm correct, since 1997, so about 20 years. Yeah. So what... That's actually when we started working. I mean, like, well, that was our first job. It was on uh, Veronica's Closet. Was that mm-hmm. the first one? Yes. Yeah. Which, like, what 25-year-olds, you know, you know <laughs> wouldn't want to be on Veronica's Closet. But at the time, it was, like, the number two rated show on television. Yeah. Um, Percy from Cheers. Yeah, well, yeah, and the creators of Friends. Um, they created the show. And so, you know, I think our first year on the show, it was on between Seinfeld and ER. And it had, like, it averaged, like, 23 million people watching it or something like that. It was crazy. Um, You know, nowadays that would be the highest rated show by far of anything on TV. Um, But yeah, it It was was fun. It was fun because, well, it ended up not being a very fun job, but the, uh, the, uh, it was the same offices as Friends. So right down the hall was the Friends writer's room and that was the number one show on television and a huge phenomenon just going into its like fifth season and it was like huge. Yeah. So just being around that and, and sort of working with um, David uh, Crane and Marta Kaufman was, was pretty exciting. And to be like having obviously been a huge Friends fan, then all of a sudden be on the stage where they're taping a Friends episode, you know, was like, was pretty amazing. Uh, and what um, motivated you guys to start working together as a team? Is that, uh... we, I was actually writing with my dad. Um, who is a writer and a, and a lawyer and was a journalist for a long time. And we were writing a couple features together. Um, and I was in film school at UCLA in the graduate program. And, yeah. you know, when you have a partnership with somebody, you always bring baggage to that partnership. But, like, when you're writing with your dad or your wife or your sister, it's like sometimes the baggage you bring is the person you're partnered with. It can get a little weird. So... We had been writing, and John and I had been friends for a couple years, and John was sort of doing, like, on the executive side, I think you were an assistant to the head of Fox mm-hmm. and an assistant to a, big, to a movie producer, and so we were sort of coming at it from different ways, but we always knew we wanted to write, and then our buddy was, a, was an assistant on an NBC show at the time, and he kept bringing home scripts, and we were like, well, we could write one of these. We should write, it was called The Single Guy with Jonathan Silverman. Yeah. And we wrote one, and we somehow got it to an agent who basically read it and was like, this is good, but no one will read this. It's the single guy. You need to write something that you know, someone might read one day. And I think we wrote a Friends. Did we write a Friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wrote a Friends. We wrote a News Radio, which was a big show at the time. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. And that's, Larry Sanders. And I think we just had very similar sensibilities from the, from the beginning. We, we wrote had, a Spin City, remember? Oh yeah, we wrote a Spin City. We had very similar sensibilities right away, and we have, and we also have very different temperaments. You know, it just it fit very well together from the very beginning. How did you guys beginning. approach finding the voice for the particular shows that you were writing specs on? Was there sort of a way of watching the shows repeatedly, understanding the characters? What do you think was key in terms of making those specs as good as they could be? I think I think we the the, the thing that we have in common is like we grew up watching a ton of television and we like the same things. We have the same sensibility for sure, like almost 100%. And we just were very familiar with all of these shows just as fans. And living in Los Angeles, I went to USC um, 
just being around it a little bit and and after a couple of years of like kind of being an assistant at talent agencies and things like that like you just sort of like it just sort of it's like it, it kind of gets it gets to you you know yeah. but, I, but I think it was watching those shows a lot um, and and it helped that like as, as John said as kids we watched a lot of TV we watched uh, so many movies you know we always talk about early HBO movies that were just on over and over and over again and all the Eddie Murphy movies and I think when you're a comedy nerd or someone that loves that you start to do the voices anyway and that I think really helped once we started watching these shows and getting the voices and it's so key when you work on a TV show especially when you're just on staff is to be able to get that voice down yeah. you know and to be able to get what the creator what the executive producer what they want and you really have to mimic that as much as possible that's your job when you're on staff is to do the best version of the show that they are asking you to do. And so it was a really good lesson early on to write these specs because you were trying to basically, it, it, you know, someone once said that like a spec, and nowadays it's a little different because less people write specs, they write more original material, but it was people, someone once said to us once, when you're writing a spec of a TV show, you should be able to go right into the stack of scripts that the writers are writing and they shouldn't be able to tell the difference between who wrote that. Yeah. And that's a big thing to do because when, once you get in a room, you realize, oh my God, you spend hours and hours and hours talking about these characters and honing them. So to be able to do it from the outside is tough, but if you can do that, you can show that you can work on a TV show, I think. It's, yeah. like, a, it's like a weird form of uh, imitation or like mimicking because it's this balance where you want to bring you want to bring your good ideas, your original ideas for say story, yeah. our jokes, but the vo like Josh was saying, the voices of those characters, you you can't change them. That's what they are, and like I think that those shows, really good, like sitcoms, multi-camera sitcoms, but also now single camera. It's like good shows like that. Their characters are very well drawn and. Like, you just get it immediately. We always said, like, Friends was a great show, but, like, there was the nerd, there was the dumb guy, there was the spoiled girl, there was the OCD girl. Like, it was, you, yeah. you can define those characters. Those characters were drawn so well, you could pull stories out of them. Yeah. Very easily. It's just, it's, it's very simple. I mean, obviously, there's nuance to it after a while, and the actors yeah. bring a lot to it, too, but it's just, like, that makes a good show. It's just like, I know what that character is. And, and then from there, I can write that character. I know what this character would do in this, in this story because it's not confusing. It's, it's, that's, I, you know, we've always talked about that's a good way to construct a show is to have those you know, very strong characters that you know what they are. And did you guys develop a, a way of working together at that point? I mean, does one person type? Does one person... You know, we really... It, uh... um, because we, we know there's lots of partnerships that like literally sit in a room together and look at the screen together and type. We never really have done that. We, what we will do is we will talk about the story forever and break out the story. Like, you know, if you look at boards and boards we use when we're breaking down a story, the outline will be super extensive where we'll talk about everything in a scene. And then we'll usually split it up and I'll write some and he'll write some or like I'll write the A story and he'll write the B story or he'll write the first half and I'll write the second half and then we'll put it together. And it's, it's amazing how many times like we'll have done that and I'll put a joke in the first half that somehow he put another joke that pays off what I did even though we didn't even talk about it. You know, so we've always had a thing where we, and we try to write that draft as quickly as we can. So we take a lot of time on the outline and a lot of time just talking about the story and talking about the characters, then write the first draft as quickly as we can. And then for the rewrites, we usually do it together. So we'll usually, someone will be on the, uh, someone will be on the keyboard and someone will be on the screen and that we'll do together because the rewriting is really where it becomes good. You know, and if, if we have to do huge rewrites where we have to rewrite whole scenes or new scenes, yeah. someone will go off and write them. But normally that's really for us where like it actually gets good. Um, and so, and we change, we shift all the time on who's on the keyboard and who's, I think it just depends on whose brain is working a certain way that day. Mm -hmm. Because when you're not on the keyboard, you, you can focus just on the ideas and, and what's on there. When you're on the keyboard, you kind of have to do both. And we'll switch off all the time. But it's really about, like, for us, the massive amount of work is breaking the story and getting it down to a certain point. Like, we won't walk off. We, it won't be like, oh, so-and-so does this in a scene. No, it'll be the whole scene where we sort of pretty much know everything we want to do. Yeah. And to, uh, to sort of understand the process of how it works with a staff, 
at what point are you guys working on your own and at what point are you in the room with all the other writers and producers collaborating? Uh, well, in comedy, always, always in the room. Always the staff, I mean, you can split the rooms so there's more than one thing going on at the same time, but you're always collaborating with at least five people, six people, and you know, Josh and I, um, I mean, we, they actually, they're not supposed to do this, but like they split us up pretty early on. Like a lot of times when you hire a writing team, it's kind of like they treat it as one entity and they almost feel like they have to be together, like they gotta bounce stuff off each other or just like, you almost look at them as like one person pitching even though it's two people, but we caught on pretty early and I think that we work just fine. But just to talk about that for a second, so that's sort of a dirty little secret that, by the way, we've taken advantage of being partners and also and running shows we've taken advantage of from the other side is, you know, a lot of people like to hire teams for a couple reasons. One is because they're already used to collaborating. You can't work in a successful team if you can't collaborate. So when you get into the bigger room, you're, you're used to that. And the second thing is it's, it's one salary. So we're doing the work, we're doing, it's not like we do half the amount of work when we're in a room. We're doing the same amount of work as the writer on the other side of the table who's just a single person, but we're getting paid sometimes half the amount of money. Interesting. Yeah, so you don't get paid that much more money if you're in a team. But staffs love it, especially in comedy, because they get two bodies for one price. So it's kind of a dirty little secret. Like I said, like we've been on the other side where we've taken advantage of it as, as showrunners because we go, oh, it's another body in the room. But then when we were on staff, you know, we've had to take the brunt of taking half a salary. But the other side of that is usually it's easier to get hired because they know they're getting two bodies. Yeah, they know you can work in a room with other writers. Yeah. And collaborators. But in comedy, you're, you spend a lot of time in the room, you know, and, and every comedy is different. I know some shows write the whole, write all the scripts just as a room together. I think we believe in, um, it's important to break a story and have a writer go off and write at least a draft of it. And then normally that draft will come back into the room and then a group of people will rewrite that draft. So in comedy, you're in the room a lot. So on the Mindy Project, for example, uh, like let's say the new season's about to start and you're in the room with the other writers, is there sort of a, a breakdown of what the whole season trajectory will be and what writers will be assigned to each episode? Well, it's a the very beginning, yeah. I mean, they, it's different there, I think, just because, first of all, we came in season five, and at some point when you're on a show for a long enough time, like, there's a shorthand, and there's just, they, they have a roadmap for how they like to do things. Yeah. Um, very quickly, when any show, you have a period of pre-production in the beginning where you're not actually filming the show, where the writers get to really talk about exactly what you're talking about. Some people like to arc out the whole season. Some people, it's episode by episode. Um, and that's the time where you start talking about, you know, the, all the episodes and what's coming up and then you start breaking out stories and usually on the board you have a list of like, you know, they do 10, 14, something. I can't remember. At the Mindy Project? Yeah, I think they did 14 this year. So, you know, and, and Mindy, that's also a specific thing. Mindy not only is the star, but she's, you know, it's truly her voice. She's got it in her head. She knows what she wants to do. Um, which is great for a showrunner because there's a clear direction. And it's different there because it's Hulu, so it's, they can be a little bit more serialized. But that's the point. But the point about the Mindy show is that they have it down to a science. They know exactly what they're doing. Mindy and Matt Warburton, who's the other showrunner, like, they, they've worked it out. That room is run so efficiently. And like John said, like, Mindy is the star, but she's the voice of that show. And she knows all the st stories she wants to do. And she's very good about being decisive and picking and choosing what she wants to do and what fits in her character and what fits with the arc. So that show's a little bit different because, um, you know, it's on Hulu and it's got a real distinct voice and Mindy is clearly the voice of that show. For other shows, like Happy Endings, which was a show we did, you know, it, at the beginning, it was we, we sort of were servicing, trying to service the what was in the pilot, but then we very quickly moved away from that. And that first season is all about just developing your characters and seeing who works well together, and 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 sort of trying to tell stories that illuminate the character. And then in seasons like two and three, you can begin to arc out stuff. Like you know, in this in season you know um, two of, of happy endings, you know we would do small arcs where we would say like, oh, we want Max to have a boyfriend for five episodes. We've never done that with him. Let's do 
uh, an arc where he has a boyfriend for five episodes, or Penny has a, has a boyfriend, or is, gets engaged for five episodes, or Alex and Dave end up back together, but they don't tell anybody for a while, and then they move in together. So a lot of times in comedy, you'll have miniature arcs, but as opposed to like a drama where like you have to have a, a season-long arc, like a you know, Lost or The Handmaid's Tale or any of those shows which are building to a bigger thing, it is still called situational comedy. At the end of the day, you're going to have lots of episodes that are just standalone. Um, and so a lot of times is, well, what's funny for the character and what's a funny story and how can that fit in? And, and so it will depend on that. But like even on the Mindy Project last year, they had a big arc in that, you know, she'd broken up with Danny and, and she was single and then she wanted to be single, but she got into a relationship with this nurse. But even then we had standalone episodes, you know, like the episode where she went home to Concord, Massachusetts to be with her mom and her brother or the episode where Mindy Lahiri is a white man, you know, I mean, that's truly standalone. That's a real standalone or the sliding doors one. But I guess that was actually still in the story with, with and even ben. when she went home, the whole story was that her ex husband or boy, Danny. Danny was getting married and that was what. And then in the end, it kind of came back to her new boyfriend. But still, like, so you keep that kind of stuff alive. But yeah, I mean, traditionally, you know, the, the, if you're doing network comedy, they do, I think they like standalone stuff because they, they like to cross 10 bridges and they go, oh, well, you know, they want anybody to be, be able to turn on the show at any time and go and just watch it and not be confused. Like, who is this person, who is this boyfriend that, you know, they're referring to a fight from two weeks ago. I've never seen this. So they want people to be able to drop into it. Um, Whereas in cable, you can do, you know, it can be a little bit different. You follow a whole season. As he, you know, Master of None has, a, has you know, an arc to it. Um, you know, it's a little bit different with network and cable. Although I think everyone's moving towards the direction of a little bit more serialized now. Just because those are the shows that are popular. And like Netflix in particular, the whole concept of binging you know, you don't, like, you, you want it to be serialized because you want somebody, as soon as the episode two's over, to get right into episode three, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And that's harder in comedy, you know. How do you guys, uh, you know, when you're writing a script, thinking about placement of jokes, are you always conscious of a joke has to be here, or I'm, I'm writing this out and it's story, 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 where do I place the joke, or is it very natural? I mean... It depends. Well, we're joke whores. Yeah, yeah. So we like a lot of jokes. There's usually like, you, you, you go into rhythm sometimes where you like, you, you talk about the story and you're just like, you, you, I mean, in a good way, you kind of get into it and you're just like, oh, and then he should say this and this and then that. And then after a while, sometimes you're looking at the screen. It's like, we haven't had a joke in a while. Like you, there's always that. Someone always is there to say that, especially in a writer's room. It's like, this is a whole page with no jokes. And you usually don't want that. But you also want to, you know, not just put a joke in for the sake of a joke and sell out a character or anything like that. So the other thing I'll say is, is that multi-camera and single camera, the rhythms are different. And like when we first started, remember, what was it, three jokes per page? Yeah, it used to be like three jokes per page on a multi-cam. Like, you know, a multi-cam is Cheers or Friends or Veronica's Closet or... A mash, or you hear that laugh track. You hear the laugh track. The laugh track, track is basically theory, like Big Bang Theory. They, that they have a lot of jokes on those shows. You know, whereas single camera, because it's shot like a movie, you can have a. It's less. It's a little bit more subtle sometimes. You know, but like happy endings, we made a decision early on. We were just going to pack it full of jokes, to the point where it was almost literally too many jokes. Like there were lots of times I was involved in the episode. I broke the whole story. You know, I helped rewrite it. And then I would watch it on TV and I was like, this is even too fast for me, you know, but so it just depends on what the style of the show is and what yeah. the tone of the show is, you know, Modern Family has amazing, great jokes, but they always come from character and, you know, it's a little bit, tiny bit slower, um, but they have great, great jokes on that show, really well written, well crafted jokes. But the thing about that show is the characters are so clean and so clear, they always come from character, you know. Going into the production process, are you guys on the set pretty often, sort of giving notes and Yeah, I mean, when you watch a TV show and you see like executive producer, producer, co-producer, supervising producer, most of those are writers. You know, it's just the title that they've been given to sort of where they are in the hierarchy of the yeah. show. So, so the great thing about TV, for writers at least, is you're really involved. You're making all the decisions. So there's always a writer on set, usually, in editing. Mm -hmm. um, 
dealing with the directors. So you're really, really involved in all that stuff. And are you sort of watching how the jokes are working out, how the actors are responding to the material? Is that very key? Yeah. I mean, there's a... Look, every show works differently, and, you know, there's some... There's more collaboration on some than others. Some showrunners are very, like... I'm, I'm running this, I'm in charge, you be up in the room and, and just write the scripts and then they're dealing with the actors. Some other showrunners are more inclusive and want the writers, the lower level writers, to come and ex, you know, sort of experience it all and get the experience of being on stage because that's another skill set. That's the thing about television production is that writing is, is kind of a small part of it. You know, actually physically writing, we always were amazed when we first started. It was like, you know, you're a writer, but you, except when you go off and write a draft, which is maybe twice a season, you're in the room, crafting story, talking, mapping it out, and then after a draft pitching comes in, jokes, pitching jokes, and then you're rewriting someone else's script. And then there's also, you're shooting an episode down on stage. Are you going to be on stage talking to the writers? A lot of shows like to have... Uh, alt jokes they call them alternative jokes where it's like if a joke is not landing we've got 10 alternatives that was written that were written yesterday by a group of people you're helping talk to the writer maybe or the actor maybe the actor doesn't he's like i'm not i don't know if this joke is really working can you tweak it there's editing well yeah at any given time when you're in production on a show there is the show that's shooting the week the week that you're shooting there is um an episode that's being prepped to, to shoot the next week Okay, then, and then, so you're rewriting that off notes, and then an episode that's being rewritten to have a table read so for the network and the studio to come and give notes, so then you have to rewrite that, and then you have episodes that are being broken, stories that are being broken, then at the same time you also have post going on, so you have episodes that are in post, so you need to be editing, you need to be looking at music, you need to be looking at all that, so when you really get into production, it can get crazy. And that's why the pre-production time is so important to bank as many scripts and stories as possible, because that's really what takes the longest. Basically coming up with the stories, breaking the stories, as we say. That's, that's the, the real, true, hard work. So is the goal really to have those stories broken in pre-production? Not to necessarily have the scripts completed, but just to have the stories broken as, Yeah, I, to, to, for me, and I think for John and I, it's always about how many stories do you have broken. And in a lot of shows that are on cable, they write all the scripts beforehand, and then they shoot them. So that, networks haven't done that as much because that's a cost-saving thing because you have all the scripts written and you can let some of the writers go. And then what they'll do is, depending on how big the order is, if it's a six episodes, maybe even ten episodes, they'll cross-board shoot. So they'll kind of shoot it like a movie where they'll take two episodes and they'll shoot them out of order, but they can shoot them all at the same time so it saves money. A lot of cable places do that. But I guess the downside to that is the writers aren't there to help fix things. On the you can't rewrite as much. So especially when in a new show, when a new show is starting, it's harder to do. Mm-hmm. But a lot of cable shows do it that way. Um, and a lot of those shows like, you know, I mean like Master of None or Atlanta, like the creator of the show is also the star. So they're there to, to, you know, have a quality control. Course correct. And course correct on all that stuff. Yeah. I was curious, looking at uh, your guys' resume, you worked on the Academy Awards. So what is that process like, writing for the Oscars, writing jokes for a host, you know, writing those set pieces? I mean, how involved were you? We, uh, that was actually um, when Jon Stewart hosted. And at the time, Josh's college roommate Ben Carlin was the executive producer of The Daily Show, so John brought out most of The Daily Show staff um, to work mostly, I think, on monologue stuff, but because they were coming from New York to L.A., they needed some L.A. writers. Initially, we were asked to come and write these short films uh, based on some of the nominees, and so me and Josh and a couple of other writers met with John and a bunch of the other writers to collaborate on that and we pitched them a whole bunch of ideas. And the idea was basically to make, what year was it? Was it an election year? I think it was 2006 from where No. Oh, okay. But the, basically the yeah. joke was is that making like election commercials for each of these nominees. Like, a, yeah. like campaign. Like campaign commercials. Uh, please. Like vote for. Right. You know. Felicity Huffman for. Uh, but, but the joke was it was like, you know. Bad the, the, commercials. The, the visual effects editor. Vote for, you know. <laughs> 
yeah, we did, Sheinberg we or did whatever one it was. about yeah, and so so we did a lot of that, and then we taped those and filmed those, and we worked on the opening too, which was you know every host always does their opening, and John did one with Chris Rock was in it. There was a bunch. Uh, George oh, Clooney was in a it. Pre- oh, there's a pre. So we did a lot of that, and then. As it got closer and closer to the thi- to the actual night, we we pitched a lot of monologue jokes and stuff for that. Right. And then the most fun was the night of, while the show was going on, we were either in a little room off to the side or literally just standing right by the side of the stage where John was and his producers were, and just pitching jokes off things that had happened that night. So it was kind of amazing that something would happen and then you pitch a joke and John would walk right out there and say the joke to hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. It was the most immediate form of joke writing gratification that you could ever get because like when you film a multi-camera yes you can pitch a joke and the actors go say it and the audience laughs but this was literally live on television in front of hundreds of millions of people and it was it was awesome it was yeah. very very cool gauging what's going on from the show yeah yeah because yeah. yeah things are happening crazy things are happening that evening like i think there was like the one of the better examples of that when billy crystal hosted when jack palance won Best Supporting Actor, and he did like one-arm push-ups, and then like they literally wrote jokes for the rest of the show. Um, and I, I always, I, I always have to give Josh credit for um, the great joke on the fly that night with John Stewart. Was that was the year that the Three Six Mafia, which was a rap group, they won the yeah. best original song for like how, it's hard Hustle out here for a pimp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we're downstairs and. It's like watching this happen like a game of uh, telephone. We're in our little like room downstairs and we're all talking and somebody's there on the keyboard and Josh goes, Josh goes, for anybody keeping score at home, uh, Three Six Mafia has one Oscar, Martin Scorsese has zero Oscars. <laughs> so, he ty- so everyone laughs, he types it in, it goes upstairs, somebody on the side of the stage read it, types back, that's great, and then 10 seconds later, John comes out and tells that joke. Huge, huge joke. That was... Uh, it was cool. That was awesome. Instant gratification. There. Instant gratification. <laughs> it'll never get better than that. And I was curious about the animation process because you guys have worked on American Dad. And, you know, I've always wondered, I mean, how does the writing and the production kind of go hand in hand? Because animation is so complex in terms of how it's done. Yeah, it's, it's totally different. Um, we love animation. We've done a bunch of animation, a- animated things. Um, and John was there for much longer than I was because uh, we split up for a little while and we're doing different things. We were always working together, but we weren't working on staff together. I mean, you should talk about the animation process. It's totally different. Um, um, it's uh, the, the, the actual story breaking, you know, the very beginning of that. that and the writing was, of the script. And the writing, that's all the same. I mean, that's the same as any live action show, except because obviously because of animation, you can do so many other, you, you get to, Free your mind. Literally. Yeah, the, the joke on American Dad was in the third act of the show that just we can always send them in space. Right. We can always, we can always just send them in the space. And yeah. then I eventually wrote a script where they went to the moon. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the, the process itself with that is obviously you have this very long animation process after the script is written. And um, that's where it gets more complicated, but also way more collaborative. So you know, as opposed to having a whole crew, a production crew on a stage and actors and stuff like that, you have an entire team of animators and people who are storyboarding, which is like the very initial drawing where they literally do panel by panel um, of the script that you've already written. So you write the script, you table read the script and then record the script where they have a sound booth and they get all the actors in to record the script. And then from that recording, they animate the show. And that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. And they, they, they draw these huge panels, they're called storyboards. And then when you're a writer though, especially on American Dad, I'm not sure about other shows, but the writer is very involved in their episode. So you get to, I mean, you take these huge stacks of storyboards home and you are literally looking at panel by panel, making sure that the facial expressions uh, uh, coordinate with lines and maybe sometimes and you can make little like post-it notes where you just say I think you shouldn't be frowning here blah 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 so then from there they make something called an animatic which is and that takes a couple months that takes a couple of months which is literally like the black and white raw drawing of the show and then when they put that all together with the voices and you know everything like that then all the writers get together and have an animatic screening where you actually watch it and it's the rawest form of 
the animation. And then from there, everybody gives notes. This worked, this didn't work. Um, you can change a lot at that point. And then you do a whole rewrite, just like, it's like, it's like watching rehearsal for mm -hmm. live action. And then from there, the animators make all the changes that you say. And then from there, uh, they send it, they, they call it coloring, where they actually send it and they computer animate it. To Korea to or Korea. something. Yeah. I always just picture a bunch of dudes in, in uh, bunk beds yeah. coloring on all cots. these shows on cots. Yeah. And that takes months another months couple months. Also. And they do 22 episodes per season for American well, yeah. Dad. Well, yeah. I don't think oh. American Dad does anymore. But I mean, most yes. shows do 22 episodes. episodes. Family Guy. Yeah. So, and it, the, whole t the whole thing takes like 10 months, you know, and that's for like, you know, obviously South Park does it in a week, but they have a very different, their animation is different and they have a whole team of people in a huge warehouse in Marina Del Rey where they've just, they, they're the only ones that can really do it like that. Mm -hmm. But if you're making traditional animation that looks traditional, like live, you know, like, um, you know, primetime animation, it takes 10 months. But it's amazing how even 10 months later, you, you write a joke and then somehow that joke is very re relevant in the moment. Like I remember on American Dad, one of the jokes always is at the beginning he picks up the newspaper and so you could write headline jokes. Yeah. And no one ever wanted to do it because it was like, oh, we don't want to write headline jokes. And then once you got in there, it would be a lot of fun because you could just, it's lit with short jokes and stuff like that. And I remember, I can't remember who wrote a joke, but it was a great joke, which is that Britney Spears gives birth to a can of skull. And it was just a funny joke. And then 10 months later, she, I think literally when we'd written the joke, she wasn't pregnant. She got pregnant and was about to give birth. And we're like, oh, we can't do that now because she literally is about to have a real kid. But we had, and that, that you can change yeah. very late in the game. Mm -hmm. But that's really the only thing you can change at the end. For the most part, you're really stuck with what you have. You can't make major, major changes. Yes. Especially as the process goes on. Like once, once they, they do the computer animation and the coloring and they send it back, we do have a color screening, but at that point, you can make small changes, but it's too expensive to change that. And you're literally like changing lines that you think will fit in their mouths in kind of the same way the old line fit. It's sort of a very exact process. Right. How, how their mouths are working and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wanted to touch upon Scrubs because I'm a big fan of that show. How did you guys get involved and what was the tone of that writing room? Well, so John actually didn't do that. I ended up doing that by myself because John was still working on American Dad. And that was, you know, and we... I hate Scrubs. No, I'm <laughs> we have been huge fans of Bill Lawrence for years and years and years and always wanted to work with him and it just never sort of lined up. And Bill, you know, in the last... He had created Cougar Town and... He was able to convince um, ABC to do a last season of Scrubs, and he pitched them a really smart thing, which is sort of make it younger and make it about a medical school. And so he was looking for someone to come in and help him run that show. And you know, originally he was interested in John and I, but John wasn't available, so I ended up doing it with him. And you know, I only I only got to work for Bill for eight months, but it was incredible. I mean, it was like you learn that guy is a genius, and the way he runs a room, and the way he picks writers, and the way he deals with the network and the studio and the actors, he's just like it's basically like learning at the feet of a master. Like the guy really is has got it down on how to do a TV show, and he was doing so many simultaneously at one point. Well, yeah, and yeah. this one he had Cougar Town and Scrubs, and he was just getting Cougar Town off off the. Um, off the ground and so that was great because all of the people that were it was actually all a lot of new writers that last year and everybody was huge Scrubs fans and the thing that was genius about Scrubs is that the way he built the show you know we always talk about like if the show is not built right it will fail it has to be built right from the beginning which means that the idea has to be good the way you do the show has to be good the actors have to be great you know and that show was built in such a way that because you had the hospital and so much of it was contained and you had Zach Braff's voiceover, you could really build stories in an interesting way because you could always connect them with Zach's voiceover. And you could always connect them, you know, you would always have a case that was sort of somehow related to what was going on in someone's personal life. Yeah. And the actors were amazing on that show. You know, you could write page-long, um, you know, just literally just listen to John C. McGinley, dies Dr. Cox, you just have a monologue that's a page long. And he could nail it every time. And so for me, it was a great experience because I really learned how to run a show. I really learned how, what it takes to be number one in the seat. You know, For so many people, running a show is so different than just writing on the show. Because we, I think John touched on it a little bit, is that 
It's weird. It's one of the only businesses where if you get, basically get hit by lightning, which means you get a television show on the air, that's how hard it is. And most of that was you just in your room by yourself or with your partner writing and rewriting and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you get a television show on the air and you have to be the CEO of a $2 million a week operation. They're two totally different skill sets. You know, some people don't want to do both. Some people are not good at both. And so the ones that really are successful, Steve Levitan at Modern Family, Chris Lloyd at Modern Family, Bill Lawrence, you know, we worked for Jonathan Groff who um, ran Blackish the last couple of years. Like guys like that who could do both, like those are really the ones you want to learn from because they can be creative, but they also know how to manage this big time operation. And so for me, not only was it a dream to be able to work on Scrubs and work with Zach Braff and Donald Faison and all those amazing actors. And it was funny, we cast all these unknowns as um, the, the young medical students. And one of them was um, Davey Franco. Franco, you know, who's now become a star. Um, Eliza Coop. Uh, Eliza Coop was one of them. Uh, Aziz Ansari, Bill found and was on the show for a while. Like he had such a good eye for young talent. Um, and the writers that have come through Scrubs are amazing. You know, it's all everyone that has shows on the air and is working now. Like he just knew how to build a, a staff of really talented, smart people. And so. For me, that was a great lesson in how to run a show and how to empower your people and, and how to get the most out of everybody and pivot and deal with the network in a way that made them feel heard without sort of changing inherently what you wanted to do. It was a, it was a great training ground for me. Uh, now back to the two of you kind of working together, I was just curious, how do you, has it changed over the years when you work on something, you write something, feeling confident in showing it to people and pitching it? How do you get to that point where you feel like you're ready to bring this to the world, a script, an idea? Um, it takes a while still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that we, I think one of the good things about being in a partnership is that you, you get excited when they get excited. Like, I trust Josh's judgment. Like, if I pitch an idea, we all, like still, almost every day we come in and we go, why isn't there a show about this? Or wouldn't it be funny if this happened? Or even a joke or something like that. But like, and like sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of times I come in and be like, what about a show like about, you know, you know, a funeral home or something like that. And he's like, well, uh, maybe, you know. And then you realize you're like, okay, you know, you've, you've heard it. from, But that's one of the things that you have somebody to bounce it off of. And like, I think we trust our own instincts that like, when he comes in with an idea, or if I come up like, we should do a show about blank, and it's like, yeah, that's why hasn't anybody ever done that? That's a great idea, that's a great idea. That builds your confidence to tell other people. But I also think by the time it gets through our filter, like as John is saying, like by the time we have to discuss it or argue it out over a point, by the time it gets past us, yeah. we know it's in a place where we, we can show it to that's people. That's really the benefit of having a writing partner. That's the that 100%. I, I always say the benefit of having a writing partner, one of the big benefits is, is when you're creating something. Like I can't imagine being alone by myself, asking myself these questions. I need someone else to ask these questions. And then the other great time to have a writing partner, it's easy to be a writer when things are good, when you sell things, when shows get on the air. You really need a writing partner when it's bad, when your things get passed on or they don't get bought or they get canceled. That's when you need the other person to be like, this sucks, right? And for them to be like, yeah, it sucks. You know, that's when you really need that other person. But but it's just, when you're creating something, it's so nice to have someone else that you trust to, to, to sort of be your barometer of what's good and what's not good. So by the time it gets through our process, we feel pretty good. Whether or not it sells or not, or is successful or not, we at least feel good that it's like something we're happy about putting our name on. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and most of the times, by the time it gets there, it, it's, it's at least good enough where, where we feel like we can show it to other people. It's not embarrassing, I guess. Well, I was reading you guys are working on a feature script. I wonder if you could talk a little about that or if that process of working on a feature is different than... Was that uh, the Paramount thing? Yeah. <laughs> that has been a... Uh... So it's been a weird journey, that story. I mean, the short version of that is like we, we came up with that idea. Um, yes, it is, it is a very different process. Feature stuff is way slower. And the role of the writer in features, which we haven't done as much. We we did a bunch of feature stuff like early on, on. early on, and then we've mostly been focusing more on like show running and TV development and stuff like that, and, and writing on staff and stuff. But um, 
we came up with this, it was basically a joke idea that, that we, uh, we had an agent a long time ago who was sort of giving us some counsel and said, uh, here's the movies that sell. Uh, ghost movies and, and college movies. That's what sells. So we left his He's office. He's no longer our agent. No. And we left his office and from the office to the valet in the building, we said, let's come up with an idea. Let's come up with a ghost college movie before the car comes around. And I think I told Josh, I said, what about a movie called, and I had the title, I was like, Ghost Bros. And it's like a bunch of fraternity, you know, douchebags basically die, kill themselves accidentally in some sort of like drinking or hazing accident. They die, their ghosts sort of haunt this fraternity house. And then 30 years later, a bunch of like basically nerds move in and the ghosts and the nerds have to collaborate to like, help the nerds become cool or something. To that go to heaven. Like, to go to heaven. And it was a joke idea we had for years. Everybody, every writer has their joke idea and we would pitch it in every writer's room and everybody would be like, why are we not writing that right now? Yes, it's a joke idea, but it's also kind of weirdly brilliant. And we joked about it forever and ever and ever. And then um, the guy, Andrew Singer, who runs Broadway Video, Lord Michael's company, we've done a bunch of projects with him. We did an animated thing with them. And he was, one day he was like, they're looking for sort of supernatural comedies at Paramount. And we pitched him this idea. He's like, that's amazing. You have to write that. And we were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then, I, you know, as good producers do, like two weeks later, he's like, I pitched it to Lorne. He thinks it's hilarious. You guys got to come up with something. And two weeks later, I pitched it to the people at Paramount. They think it's funny. Come up with a pitch. So we're like, oh, now we have to actually come up with a pitch. <laughs> and so one of the things that we struggled with was nerds are not nerds anymore. It's a really antiquated. I know Big Bang Theory, but like nerds are cool. Now, now. the tech industry. Yeah. And so nerds aren't nerds. So we struggled with like, how do you make it? How do you make it modern? And I think seeing movies like 21 Jump Street and This Is The, this end. Is the end were movies that are sort of like dumb, smart movies. Like you watch 21 Jump Street and there's no, there's no way it should be as good as it is. And it's because those guys are so good together and they, they made a meta comment on those kind of movies and same with This Is The End. And watching those movies, we were kind of like, well, maybe we can try something here that's sort of like a college gross out R-rated comedy with a ghost thing. And John actually came up with the idea that like, Instead of it being nerds, it should be this idea that 30 years ago this was a college, like some small college in the Northeast, like Dartmouth kind of, that was a crazy party school, and then these guys died in a stupid hazing accident, and basically they went the whole other way, and now this school is like, what, what's ha it's really reactionary. School's now like, you know, no drinking, no partying. No fraternities. No fraternities at all, and that's happened <clears throat> now, you know, and, and schools are on lockdown now, and it's... Our joke was that it's a school, it's basically like the town, the, the town in Kansas in, Flash, in uh, Footloose. And so we thought that was an interesting take on what's happened in the world now. And like we have a joke in the movie where two kids are about to hook up in their dorm room and there's, an, uh, there's a 24-hour online lawyer that is available to sign away your consent to make sure. And we liked that idea and then it sort of became this idea that these kids stumble into this house and they find these ghosts still living there, they're living in purgatory and the ghosts find out what happened to their school in the subsequent 30 years, and it becomes like a revolution movie. Uh, you know, and there's a horrible dean that's like a dictator, and it's the ghost and these young kids basically trying to bring fun back into college. And once we sort of figured that out, it was like, oh, that feels like that could be more of a contemporary idea. And then we pitched it to Paramount, and mm -hmm. they weirdly bought it. But the problem with that is that we wrote a draft, and literally in the year and a half that we've been developing that, there's been... How many executives have there been? People keep leaving because Paramount is such a place. The uh, I mean, Brad Gray, of course, left. Well, Brad, but like uh, our executives both left, and then Adam Goodman, who is I think the head of Paramount, got fired, and that. So there's been. It's just one of those things where we would get notes from new people and do a rewrite, and then that person would be gone, and so now it's unfortunately kind of just stuck in purgatory at Paramount. But that's kind of the reality of the movie industry and at the studio level. Yes, and our movie is not a you know. It's not like a like a like a Will Ferrell big budget studio movie. It just we didn't write it like that. It's an ensemble movie like This Is the End or something like that, and probably should be made for way cheaper. And the the reality of the feature business as we know it, you know, having you know just having this movie, but uh, you know they make superhero movies and they make big budget comedies, and that's kind of and they it. make one million dollar movies. Yeah, there's really nothing in between <clears throat> anymore. You know, I mean, what's in between is like a Will Ferrell movie that costs $40 million. 
But there's no $15 million or $10 million studio movies anymore. They just really don't exist. Unless they're very prestigious, you know, like Oscar, Oscar bait movies, really. That's why television is having... Uh, it's, yeah. It's I think it's why television now. is, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we were talking, we were at a thing last night, and, you know, it... Someone, our friend was talking about, they're doing a project with a, someone who's a pretty big director. He's directed a lot of big movies and a big comedy person. And he was like, it's hard to get movies made, but I can go to TV and I can get a show in the air and I can make that show and I can direct a bunch and I can be in charge. And it's like, it's like, man, if this guy can't get the feature business going, it's, I mean, really nowadays, like I know, you know, there was almost going to be this strike and it was a lot of discussion and it's why so much of it was about TV and why maybe feature people felt left out a little bit. But the truth is nowadays, like there's not a lot of people that are just movie people. Yeah. There's like 1.1% or 0.1% at the very top that can make a living just in the feature world. You really have to do both now. And if I was a feature writer and I wrote movies and then I never got to go to set or anything, I would for sure want to do TV where I get to be the boss and do everything. You know, it's so much more fun and immediate and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, especially I think even Barry Jenkins, who won the Oscar for Moonlight, he's doing a show for Amazon. He is? Yeah. Yeah, I would, uh... I would totally do that. I mean, like, think about, you know, how long, how many years it took him to get Moonlight made, <clears throat> you know? And then... Her next, his next movie will be what, in two years or three years? But in that time, he could do it 20 episodes of TV. And now that uh, obviously the landscape of television has changed so much, you know, 30 years ago, it probably wouldn't be the same because, you know, I don't know who's making a movie 30 years ago. Sidney Pollack. Sure. Like, CBS is probably not going to, I mean, maybe, but like, you know, you had your broadcast networks, but now. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, a hundred other places, you know? Frank Darabont was a big yeah. director, big writer, you know? He did The Walking Dead. Like, I mean, like, that's where... Woody Allen did a television show at Amazon. That's where... Woody Allen did a television show. So it's like... That's where you're going to make a dull drum, you know? Yeah. Like, I have said this a million times to Josh. It's just like, like a movie like Michael Clayton, which was like a really good adult drama. Like kind of a, you know, I don't know how much that movie cost, maybe $30 million. But I think it was Warner Brothers, it was a studio movie. Yeah, but I'm saying like that's a movie where like Tony Gilroy wrote and I think directed it and like he's like a pretty, he's a big feature writer and he directed it, but like a guy like that, excuse me, it's hard to get a movie like that made. That's just like a mid-level good movie. Great but, movie, but those movies don't get made a, That's the kind of person that will go and make a, a AMC show, you know? Yeah. So... Um, this is hilarious so far, by the way. <laughs> you know what the thing is, is that like, I think it's so funny because my wife works in the digital space and digital content and soon it's not going to be TVs or films or digital, it's just going to be yeah. content. Like, I think there was a movie that uh, Paramount passed on and now Netflix is doing it. Yeah, I mean, so Netflix is doing a Brad Pitt movie. Yeah. That movie costs like $80 million, you know, like. Is that on already? No, it's coming soon though. There's billboards everywhere, it's but like soon. it's coming soon. But uh, but like it's soon. It's not going to be like there's no differentiation. There's going to be no different. It's yeah. content. It's content. Wherever that content is, whether or not it's half hour, hour, an hour and a half, ten minutes, nine. You know, I mean, like it's all just going to be content. You know, in the same in this in that's the way the business is working, and you sort of have to just be okay with that. Cool. You know, um, yeah, we didn't tell any jokes. <laughs> Well, no, no, that, we, I've been telling jokes the whole time. They just weren't very That's strange. how bad they are. Well, I'd have to close out uh, if there's anything you guys can share about the new season of the Mini Project coming up. Uh, they haven't even started yet. No. We're not going to be on the show next year um, just because we were under a deal at Universal, and yeah. that's a Universal show, and we're moving on. What I are know you guys it's, doing next? What, uh, we don't know yet. If you ask us on Friday, we'll probably know. Okay, so you guys are sort of looking for your next... Yes, we've been under an right. overall deal here at Universal for four years, and it's yeah. been great, and we made a bunch of pilots, and we did a, a pilot with Amy Poehler and Natasha Lyonne, and we, we helped run a show called Telenovela with Eva Longoria, but we're moving out of our deal now. Um, just because deals, I think, are starting to go away, because when you're under a deal, it's wonderful, and you have these great offices, but you sort of pretty much only do stuff for, like, here it's NBC, basically, yeah. or network, and... So a lot of people are, are realizing that, you know, it, it's maybe better just to be open to be able to write shows for anyone. Just right. free agents. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you give up a lot of security. Um, but I think even studios are realizing they don't need to have people under deals anymore. They can just make deals with people to make their shows. So once again, as with everything, the business is changing. So you, our, uh, yeah, I was going to say, you, you know, you can still work on 
television shows, and then you get a job on that show, and then you develop your your pilot with anyone, anyone, you know. Anyone. And so for us, I think we just you know we had a great time here, and the people at NBC Universal were amazing to us. But just time for something new. So it's all happening right now. We'll know in in the next couple of days. Yeah. Um, well, lastly, to close out, I know, there, you know there's so many crazy business things that happen when you're a writer and you're trying to sell things and all of that, all of those mechanics, but what do you guys love the most about writing? Just when you push all of those crazy things aside and you're just doing it day to day? I think there's a couple things. One is when you're in a room with a lot of funny people, those days are amazing because you're just in a room with the sharpest, funniest people that you've ever met. And when you are cooking and, and you're either doing a rewrite and you're doing, or you're doing a story and it's something so funny, it may not even make it in the script, but it's so funny, you're just, it's, it's a wonderful thing when you're working in a room with great people and you're laughing all day, every day. And it's hard and you're there lots of hours, but it's an amazing thing. And I think for us, it's great when we are really, like when we come up with an idea or we come up with a show and we're just breaking it and it all seems to be going so well, that's what we love the most is the process, I think, is the process of actually making something. And whether or not it succeeds or fails, like you can't take that away from, you know, and, and, and it's, it's such a hard lesson to learn and because you get so worried about, well, is this going to sell or is this going to go? But at the end of the day, like, that's why you were a writer is to sit in front of that computer or sit with somebody else and collaborate and come up with a story and come up with a great character. Yeah. When those moments happen, like, it's, it makes it all worth it, I think. You know? Um, How are you going to top that? <laughs> when you write on a television staff, you come in in the morning and you get coffee or water or something like that, and you come into the writer's room and there's always a big table like this, and you sit in your table, and right in front of you, if it's run right, there's a menu, okay? And you get to pick whatever you want to eat for lunch. You circle it, and you give it to a PA, and then lunchtime comes, and you get that. <laughs> that's, but you still that's complain a, about what you ordered, though. Always. Always have to complain about what you ordered, just to keep the PAs on their, on their toes. Even though you ordered it, you chose it. And you might even like it. You still have to complain to them that it's not good. I know. I remember being one of those PAs. <laughs> so do we. We've yeah. done it all. We, we were PAs. We... Lunch is uh, a lot of, like, I mean, I'm kind of kidding, but it's also, it's like a, it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's a fun perk that you get in and every day it's a different place. And you, but, um, but if lunch, lunch doesn't is, come. Done, lunch is so important. It's so important yeah, to I'm a writing that. Staff. It's like, make sure to be specific, check the order. It's important yeah. for so many reasons because, like, yeah, you got to check the order. Um, you, 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 uh, you learn a lot about writers, like, when the order's wrong. Like, you also, like, you can sort of joke about it, but, like, don't be an asshole. Like, when, when, when you're on a writing staff and somebody, like, gets legitimately mad about their order being wrong, you're like, that's not... You that's can't, not cool. That's not cool. So <laughs> Those you, PAs you, are working It's a good gauge hard. of other people, too. But, um... um I'm kind of kidding, but uh, no, no I, lunch I, I, is key. No, lunch is key. But I, I, I also agree with Josh that, like, you know, honestly, sometimes even 20 years in, you know, when you have a really fun room and you're, you're writing jokes and rewriting a script or something like that, and, and like, it's, there's not a lot of jobs like that, you know? It's still, when it's good, it's, it's really good. And as John always says, for good or for bad in this business now, when it's, when it's bad, it'll always end. There'll always be something else in six months. It's not a job that you're going to be at for 20 years. So in a lot of ways, we're getting jobs. We're getting two and three jobs a year. You're always looking for your next thing. So it's sometimes... Really exciting and scary part of it in a way. That exactly. we're in it right now. You know, exactly. and, and the bummer is when it's really good, usually those fail. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they don't go on as long as they should. Well, great. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun.